0: no purchase necessary, void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Upon hearing about the planned American invasion of Canada 200 years ago, the Connecticut Current wrote it was commenced in folly, proposed to be carried on with madness, and unless speedily terminated will end in ruin. And as it turns out, they couldn't have been more right. Something to keep in mind is that in 1812, the United States had 7.5 million people. In Canada, about 500,000. And of that population, most were French Canadians who were at best ambiguous about being under the crown. And a number of Canadians were originally American settlers who had moved up. Americans wanted the invasion of Canada, especially those Western warhawks, young congressmen like Henry Clay of Kentucky, recently elected and immediately elected Speaker. I verily believe, he said, that the militia of Kentucky are alone competent to place Montreal at your feet. Canada was the reason for war. There were others, the northwest border never quite settled after the revolution, the treatment of our crews on the high seas, impressing American shipmen. Oh, but the French did that, too, to the point that many thought we'd be going to war with both nations. But Canada was the prize. The British had it. It was the encouragement to tip a divided Congress towards war with Britain, both the House and the Senate, in very close votes, which surprised many, including the British. And the plan to carry out the will of Congress looked good on paper. Three attacks at once to throw the British off, A force from Buffalo, New York, would attack right up the center into Upper Canada. A force from Ohio would attack present-day Ontario and move westward. And an eastern force would surge from New England and take Montreal and move eastward. Before His Majesty could reinforce, all of these three forces would center on the heavily defended Quebec and lay siege. With that, Revolutionary War hero William Hull and about 2,500 men go west to the westmost American settlement of Detroit, in present-day Michigan, and then the Michigan Territory. General Hull starts by doing something stupid. Downriver, he sends up a supply ship with the usual stuff that he will then meet when he gets to Detroit. Food, uniforms, ammunition... Invalid soldiers, oh, and this heavy trunk, you know, too heavy because it contains all the war plans. Yeah, send that upriver too, General Hull says. Well, there were still British forts upriver and that trunk would never be seen again. Hull arrives and goes right into Canada. Only a small Canadian militia opposes him and they scurry into the woods. Sounds like success. Hull issues a proclamation. You Canadian citizens, you are all free. Rise up against the British crown. Few do. Eventually, Hull hears that a British force under General Isaac Brock is coming his way and figures the best thing to do is go to the good position of Fort Detroit to defend while the other two prongs of the attack enter Canada and take over the country. Detroit, French for the Strait. It's a small town at this time, about 160 houses, 700 people. Actually, it's pretty big for the northwest of America. Now, some of the bad stuff starts to happen when Hull retires to the fort with his force. Hull's supply chain is cut off. Boats stop arriving. Then he gets word that garrisons he has left at various western areas around the lakes have been attacked by British and Indian raiders. He sends out a small force to try to relieve his supply chain. They need to fight their way back to Detroit. And then Brock's forces appear, and he begins a cannonade, slamming the city, slamming the fort. This spooks Hull, but not enough to surrender. Brock, even though he has the war plans, and knows he's outnumbered, the British forces outnumbered more than two to one, he engages in a couple of tricks. He has the cannons fire everything they can. He dresses up the Canadian militia in red coats so they look like more and more British regulars than he actually has. And he has his Indian allies make a lot of noise. The reality is he's got just 700 people to Hull's 2,500. But that doesn't stop him from sending Hull a surrender notice. And he says to the general... I do not wish for uncivilized war, but if you do not surrender, I cannot control my Indian allies. Cull is spooked, but he refuses surrender. Burke continues the cannonade, and then his forces reach the American side of the lake, and Detroit is now surrounded. More cannon, more mortar, more Indian sounds, more red coats flashing around. A day later, after lieutenant was killed in his headquarters by a cannonball, General William Hull, to the dismay of the Detroit defenders, to the absolute anguish of the Ohio militia encamped in the fort, surrendered Detroit to Brock's smaller force. General Brock reports to his supporters, Your Excellency will be astonished by what has occurred. Back in Great Britain, the London Times writes, Upon hearing the news of the surrender of Detroit, who could withhold a smile? British understatement. Among those condemning the surrender, many Westerners and the Aurora newspaper in Philadelphia, normally a supporter of the Republicans, a supporter of Madison's election in 1808, not a big supporter of the declaration of war, and not a supporter of how it's being conducted. Mainly, though, William Duane, who headed up the Aurora, just didn't like the Secretary of the Treasury, Albert Gallatin. It was embarrassing and it would get worse. Because Hull surrendered so quickly, General Brock had time to swing around to the Niagara area where the New York militia under General Van Rensselaer and Winfield Scott were attacking. Winfield Scott had uh, made headway. He had reached the fortification in Queenstown Heights above Niagara Falls and, and captured British cannon positions. This was a pretty good strategic advantage. He had only about 600 men and British reinforcements were coming from a nearby fort. At this critical moment, Van Ransselaer called for the New York militia to relieve Scott, but the militia refused to leave American soil. Winfield Scott, the erstwhile general and future commander of United States forces, and 958 men were captured by the British. Defeat was snatched from the jaws of victory, and as for the eastern attack, the one to hit Montreal. General Henry Dearborn had a hard time recruiting New Englanders, and by the time he was pressured by the War Department to move now, he made it no further than the Canadian border, where again his militia units refused to cross. The third prong did not even spring. It wasn't just the fault of these generals. There were never the tens of thousands of volunteers that Congress imagined, and not even from the states where the Hawks had voted for war. As Treasury Secretary Gallatin wrote, the series of misfortunes exceeded all anticipations, even by those who had least confidence. The London Times showed no sympathy. Four months, they said, and American achievements have been a universal blank. And they weren't finished with their ridicule. In the newspaper, they followed this with a familiar song, which brought back a favorite little caricature that the British liked of the incompetent Yankee soldier, you know, the Yankee Doodle. Just loved to satire him. The soldier's name was Ephron Williams, and appeared in many newspaper articles at the time. And the song went, Brother Ephraim sold his cow and bought him a commission. Now he's gone to Canada to fight for the nation. Brother Ephraim, he's come back, proved an errant coward, afraid to fight the enemy, afraid he'd be devoured. My apologies for the singing. No doubt sung much better in every pub in London in 1812. When your enemy is singing to you, that does mean something has gone horribly wrong. And then as now when things go poorly, you blame the guy in the well the house that we didn't call the White House quite yet. James Madison was up for re-election this year and there was quite a bit of grumbling. Sure his supporters Republicans, Democrats called used both names at this time. Used political defenses. Henry Clay used the old move the goalpost things saying, well, Canada was just a means to an end. The real end is redressing our grievances with Britain. Way to go, Henry. And some blame the Federalists, for after all, General Van Rensselaer, who had botched up the Niagara mission, was a prominent Federalist in New York, and the New Englanders didn't really do their share. But blame could not be escaped. Why were our Northwest forts not occupied? Who was coordinating these assaults? And where, where is the Navy? Questions were raised not just by Federalists, but by Republicans. In fact, Madison had one advantage here in 1812. There was really no opposition party to speak of. The Federalists only had a small minority of members in Congress. It was a dying party. They had no chance in the Electoral College. As this was the days before TV conventions, President Madison was renominated as war began, as Jefferson had done before him, by the Republican members of Congress in a caucus. That's how they picked their nominee. Tradition it may be, it was starting to annoy some Republicans even, especially Republicans in northern states who cried there was too much Virginia in their politics. You'd had Washington, you'd had Jefferson, now you had Madison. Little did they know they were going to get Monroe after this. This was particularly true of those supporters of George Clinton, the former governor of New York and vice president. Not a name you hear a lot of today, but a very prominent Republican, almost as prominent as Jefferson during the early years of the Washington administration, controlling a large state and providing a very large anti-federalist, anti-Washington administration, anti-J treaty voice. A force to be reckoned with in politics in early America, well, they couldn't run George because in April of 1812, George Clinton passed away. And so his nephew, former mayor of New York, DeWitt Clinton, was nominated by the state legislature of New York, including all but five of the Republicans in that body. Now, there were two Republican candidates vying for the presidency, and his supporters wasted no time attacking the record of the incumbent president and boosting their man DeWitt. They released newspaper articles saying that DeWitt Clinton had a Herculean mind. They had no ideology in particular. He was only committed to good government. And in this time of war, when it was necessary to appeal to both doves and hawks on the War of 1812, they straddled. He would, they say, display vigor in war and a determined character in the relations of peace. What did that mean? In many history textbooks or old election maps, you'll see DeWitt Clinton listed as the Federalist Party candidate. It's not exactly true, though DeWitt Clinton was running as a kind of independent Republican, though through envoys he secretly met with Federalists about his candidacy before and during the election. He told Philadelphia Federalists that he would make peace with Britain, and then he told Western Pennsylvania Democrats that he would manage the war better than Jemmy. And just like any present-day governor or mayor running for a bigger job, his supporters said, look at his state. His New York City harbor was adequately defended, unlike the rest of the nation. Clinton got in the act, too. He told some that he was an American federalist, whatever that meant. But at the same time, he cooled down when John Jay and Governor Morris asked him to make a statement against the war. He told these large figures in federalism, it was not the right time to sound the note of peace. For Rufus King, Federalist Senator, the Clinton campaign was disgusting. He called him a Caesar Borgia, Italian prince associated with Machiavelli, what you called somebody before you called him a Machiavellian, but meaning the same thing. Whether his positions were credible, DeWitt Clinton and his supporters knew politics. Clinton was a veteran of battling Federalists and other Republicans in the factuous state of New York. Now with New York mostly behind him, with New England controlled by the Federalists that he could get an alliance, he needed one state, the Keystone State, Pennsylvania. In picking vice presidential candidates, supporters of each man in 1812 looked to the vice presidential candidate that would best do the job of the office under the Constitution. No, they certainly did not. They went for the man that would provide the best possible gain in the election. Madison chose Elbridge Gerry, the former governor of Massachusetts. Maybe, he thought, despite the virulent opposition in New England, maybe Madison could carry that state with him as VP. Clinton, in coordination with Pennsylvania Federalists, chose Jared Ingersoll, signer of the Constitution and Pennsylvania's Attorney General. A Federalist, but a moderate Federalist that many Democrats liked. Elected statewide, not bad. DeWitt Clinton was one of those few sectional campaigns in American history, kind of like 1860. He did not have any support in the South, didn't really try. The Virginian Federalists nominated uh, Rufus King. Federalists gave him the entire, all of New England except for Republican Vermont. This was a battle for Pennsylvania.
1: Okay, round two. Name something that's
0: not boring.
1: A laundry? Ooh, a book club! <sighs> Computer Solitaire, huh?
0: Ah, <sighs> oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes.
1: Chumbacasino.com. No by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. a meeting of
0: anti-Madison Republicans in Lancaster went well for him. They condemned the conduct of the war, condemned the role of Virginia in selecting each president that we've had so far, the exception of the one term of Adams, and called for Pennsylvania a place in the national government suited to her talents, wealth, and population. Clinton meetings were then held in York, in Lancaster, in Nazareth, in Pittsburgh, and Pittsburgh a real coup, the man who ran the Democratic organization there became a DeWitt Clinton supporter. The state, Clintonian said, had not received its fair share of federal offices. Oh, and don't forget, the viral story of its day, a Virginian congressman had once said publicly and openly that Pennsylvania did not get offices because of its lack of talents. Federalists who had not been able to influence state politics for some time were invigorated by the DeWitt-Clinton campaign. They went to New York along with other Federalists in the nation to decide secretly to not name any Federalist candidate and secretly to support DeWitt-Clinton. In Philadelphia, a rival group of Republicans led by Michael Lieb, who had opposed the War of 1812, traded with Federalists to get their support for their Republican faction. The Aurora newspaper would certainly have ripped any Federalist challenge to shreds. On DeWitt Clinton, another Republican challenging the president, just said, well, let's leave well enough alone. All this looked good for DeWitt Clinton. But campaign as they might through the Keystone states, it was events on the high seas that may have turned things in this election more. The American Navy was no more than two dozen ships at this time compared To the British, you had at least a 1,000. Congress appropriated a paltry 40,000 to the Navy the year before the war. It was not the Republicans' favorite thing. Madison's Secretary of the Navy, Paul Hamilton, was a South Carolina banker with no maritime experience. Yet, there were ships eager to go, captains ready to pounce on British shipping. In fact, the main commanders of the ships wanted to mount a global war attacking British ships all over the world, wherever they may be, so that they would feel safe nowhere. A debate ensued. Secretary of State Monroe said, keep our few ships we have at home, protect our ports. The commanders of the U.S. Navy, uh, Commodore John Rogers and others, said, let us send squadrons around the world. Treasury Secretary Gallatin advised the president that there were hundreds of merchant ships at sea, and they needed protection. See, prior to war, there was an embargo with Britain. The American merchants were doing what anyone would do. They got out before the embargo had begun. By the time it was no longer just an embargo but now a war, they were out at sea. And they had cargo to bring back. It might be, Gallatin said, a million a week coming to port in the United States over the next month or so. And he didn't need to remind President Madison that the federal government at this time got its funding from excise taxes. Not surprising, the money guy won the debate, and Madison said the ships should leave the ports, go out, and try to protect American ships as best they could, get as many of them home. Commodore John Rogers led a roving squadron, led by his ship, the USS President. The American ships were fast, and since the British had to commit ships to find and defend from Rogers' squadron, they couldn't concentrate solely on blockading the United States. The USS Constitution, a frigate, which means two decks, three masts, about 50 guns, came up from Annapolis to the coast of Nova Scotia, immediately sunk two merchant ships in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. August 19th, 1812, shouts of sail ho from the lookout. There was a sail in the distance. Was it Rogers, maybe? They could meet up? No, it was the British frigate, Carrier. The Constitution has the wind on its sails, which is a good position to be in, moving forward towards Her Majesty's ship. The ship is no slouch, though. The British captain reportedly tells his crew, There is the Yankee frigate. We will have her in 45 minutes. Take her in 15, and I promise you four months' pay. That's pretty good motivation for a sailor. The Guerrier fires broadsides, continues to fire at long range, which in these days would not be highly accurate. But a few hit. The Constitution decides to hold its fire. One cannonball bounces off the Constitution, hence the name Ironsides, which still is part of the boat's legend today. When the frigate's closed to 25 yards now, the Constitution opens up with its American cannonade. The captain has instructed the guns to be loaded with what is called double shot, both cannonballs and grape shot. Tiny bits of metal balls meant to hurt the crew. The guerrier is raked by fire. You could hear the moans coming from its crew. Another broadside, and the mizzenmast, the backmast of this three-masted vessel for us landlubbers, topples and falls, but is still attached by the rigging to the boat. Huzzah, huzzah from the deck of the Constitution. So this backmast falling in was bad because it fell into the water still attached to the ship. So it was kind of acting like a brake or a rudder, slowing the British ship's maneuverability and actually spinning it in a bad direction. Captain of the Constitution sees this and tries to get around to the Guerriere in order to cut it off and launch a devastating broadside right into the front of it. Doesn't quite work. They're unable to get around the ship. Instead, both ships get tangled. Well, what do you do now? Time to board. Trumpets blow and it's time for both crews to go with hand-to-hand combat to decide the matter. British sailors, American Marines prepare. But at the same time, on the narrow part of the ships where they're connected marksmen on both sides are firing deadly volleys and really preventing either of the boarding parties from getting started. Too many bullets whizzing. The poor position of the guerriere means that it doesn't have access to turn all its cannons on to the Constitution, but it has a few cannons on its bow, and it fires them, setting the captain's cabin ablaze. The Constitution returns fire. Its cannons now fall the foremast, the front mast of the ship. And when it comes down, its rigging pulls what is already a weakened mainmast down. All three masts in the water. The guerriere stops moving. More cheers. Huzzah, huzzah. We've made a brig of her. The Constitution now untangles and is in a great position, gets in front and prepares to rake the British ship again, and this time make them like it when the guerriere fires a cannon shot in the opposite direction, where there's no ships. It's confusing. So an American lieutenant goes out to the guerriere to ascertain what's happening. With her flag, asks the captain there, we wish to know, have you struck your flag? The British captain replies, yes, he has no masks, they had no flag to strike, and so the shot was a way of communicating surrender. This victory, followed immediately by the capture of a second British frigate, the Macedonian by the United States, and the arrival of the prize at the Port of Newport, were recorded in papers throughout the nation. In some cases, the Constitution's victory was reported in the same columns as the surrender of Detroit boosting confidence in the war during a very bad time, and in no small measure, helping the administration. On kind of a little twist, the captain of the Constitution was Isaac Hull, the nephew of the disgraced general of Detroit. These positive bits of news, feelings of patriotism, and the Democratic press exposing the meetings between Federalists and DeWitt Clinton, between Federalist members meeting in secret in New York, and deciding to support Clinton and not have their own candidate, attached the Federalist banner, not popular among war Democrats in Pennsylvania, to DeWitt Clinton, raising doubts about him. Who is this unknown? He's a man of unknown ambition. He's an ingenious plotter, politician. What will he do? The Aurora newspaper, previously attacking the Madison administration, saying they'd never support them unless he fired his Treasury Secretary, now says, for the sake of unity against Great Britain, Madison should be reelected. Popular vote is held October 30th, 1812. Pennsylvania is one of the few states that does have a popular vote. Many states, the electors are voted by the state legislature. 48,956 for Madison, 29,056 for DeWitt Clinton. In today's light-up graphics, that would be 62% to 37% a landslide. Yet in the overall Electoral College picture, it is clear that Pennsylvania saved the president and saved the continuation of war. Had Pennsylvania's 25 votes gone the other way, Madison would have not been re-elected. DeWitt Clinton would have won 114 electoral votes to Madison's 103. Thus, as I promised, the election winner of 1812 is revealed, James Madison. So I tricked you a little bit about the title of this cast. Yes, it's the thing I do, get over it. But can 1812 tell us anything about 2012? Of course, it's so far away in history, and it is only one election, so really not. You need a series of elections to say anything about the present time, but only in connection with other elections does it add one more piece to the puzzle. There are some interesting notes to make about 1812. First of all is that incumbency helps, right? Prior to Madison's election, incumbents were two for three for those trying, right? Washington, Jefferson, and Adams tried two out of three for re-election, and that pattern has held up over history. Combency helps, and in the first electoral contest, while the nation is at war, as would be repeated in 1864 and 1944, the president, the war president, let's say, was re-elected. Lincoln's comment about swapping horses while crossing streams, an old Dutch farmer's tale that best not to swap horses while crossing streams, meaning don't elect somebody different when there's a crisis going on, we should always remember that he made this comment about his party nomination contest and not about the general election. Nonetheless, it kind of applies there, too. However, I am one that doubts that Lincoln's comment about swapping horses will apply through all of American history. I believe there could be a wartime president defeated. The swapping horses thing, in my opinion, applies when the horse is crossing the stream correctly in voters' opinion. When the administration's doing well in the prosecution of the war, Madison's reelection had a lot to do with his performance. When the war wasn't going well, after Hull's surrender, voters seemed to take a look at a different candidate. But when there were some victories to report, tempers cooled. Doubts were raised about his opponent, which was also a big factor in this election. Madison's supporters were happy to raise such doubts in newspaper attacks, going after the other guy in this election. And at least in this election, events occurring in America were more important than the campaign, the performance or perception of performance of the administration, even of things beyond its control. You saw many references by Democrats in the newspapers that Mr. Madison cannot be blamed for every setback in Canada. And it's absolutely true. But at the same time, voters then and now do tend to blame the president for any kind of performance of any initiative launched by the country. Voters are perfectly happy to elect a person that they're not extremely enthusiastic about. It's happened before, sometimes will happen again. I want to thank you for listening to the website MyHistoryCanBeatUpYourPolitics.com. There you can find the archive, 1499 right now. Access to everything we've recorded for the past five going on six years. Facebook site where you can discuss issues. And please, if you do enjoy the program, tell somebody about it. It's great to see references from many listeners on their blogs. Helps to spread the word about the program. I want to thank you for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off. U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.